Good morning. It is great to begin this Advent season, be able to celebrate together what it means and to explore it a little more fully. Oh Lord, help us put you in the center of it so that we truly celebrate Jesus this season and give the witness that he deserves. So starting with an unusual question this morning. Do you know your eight family surnames? All eight of them? Can you rattle them off? We're talking about those double surnames. Technically, it would be the double surnames of your grandparents. Those are the eight. Maybe some of you remember that 2014 Spanish movie entitled Ocho Apellidos Vascos. That really put it on our radar, didn't it? Highlighting the importance of pure lineage, at least in traditional Basque culture. You know, you need at least three generations back of pure Basque surnames to qualify as a real Vasco. Yeah, okay. So I didn't see the movie. I'm not necessarily recommending it. So please don't take this as my endorsement. It was a comedy typical of the era, typical of our day. But it's very culturally revealing Mm. regarding both Spanish and Basque traditional cultures. So we're just picking up on that part about the ocho apellidos vascos. Um, The movie was about a guy from Seville who gets involved with this girl from the Basque country. And as the plot thickens and gets complicated, he tries to pass for a Basque with her father, no less. But he slips up on one of those eight surnames and he throws in a Gonzalez or a Sanchez or I forget what, but it was so obviously Castilian and not Basque. So it gets more complicated. Anyway, they had a lot of pride in their pure ancestry, the Basque heritage. So, leaving that behind, in Spanish culture, we do know that everyone has two surnames, right? So that's one from each parent. And each parent, of course, has two surnames. So the double surnames of each grandparent then give you your eight ancestral surnames. It obviously requires uh, some keeping up with family history, right? It really makes it easier to keep up with family history when you got those two on each side. Um, I've always thought the double surname was a great way to sort of keep identified with your roots. I like it myself. I'm sorry we Americans uh, don't practice that more. But fortunately, in my case, I had a maternal grandfather grandfather, who was really passionate about this subject. So he did a lot of research on our family tree. And here you have some of the partial results. This only goes back four generations, uh, if I'm the one hanging there in the middle. Um, One, two, three, four, yeah. Though he actually took it much farther 
Not all of them could you fill in, but he did manage to fill all of them in for four generations and then on a number of those lines farther back. You know, fascinating stuff. Um, in fact, we can take this a little more precisely by looking at my family tree like this. Obviously, my father, uh, his surname was Dixon, like mine, yes, James Dixon. But his mother was a Malone, all right? That puts us in the Irish camp. My mother was Jean Cornelius, very British, and her mother was Coleman. So there we go, just sticking with the British and probably Scottish. After that, we have to go back another generation. There I've already got four of my apellidos, right? Four of my surnames. Dixon, Malone, Cornelius, and Coleman. Got to go back another generation, though, to get the other four. So, starting with my paternal grandparents, uh, there you have C.O. Dixon. His mother's name was Susan Derrick. So there goes another one. My grandmother, who was the only one of my four grandparents whom I knew personally for, for eight, almost nine glorious years, I got to know my precious grandmother, Edith Malone from the Irish clan, her grandmother, I mean, her mother's maiden name, though, was Mayfield, Rebecca Mayfield. I didn't get to know her, but I knew a lot of stories about her, quite a character. She was from the English side, some Scottish mixed in there, too, probably. And then we jump over to my mother's parents. My paternal grandfather, my maternal grandfather was Roland Cornelius, and his mother's name was Caroline Williams. So there we go, two more. And my maternal grandmother was Clara Jenny Coleman. Her mother was Martha Wells. So there's all eight of them right there. Dixon, Derek, Malone, Mayfield, Cornelius, Williams, Coleman, Wells. Wow. What an accomplishment. <laughs> I guess. Anyway, those are my eight family surnames. And I think pride in your ancestry is okay, as long as it's just about gratitude. <laughs> just thankful, Lord, that you, you got me here. <laughs> Amazing that it took all of that to get me to where to, to come to exist, right? When you think about all those generations and generations that contributed to you. Of course, when it gets problematic is when we mm, turn that pride into snobbery. And we think just because my ancestors were English, Scottish, Irish. Oh, and there were some Germans back there. Is that better than anybody else? Nope. They were all sinners. Every one of them. <laughs> Hopeless if it were not for Jesus Christ. In fact, my whole family tree, from the roots to the farthest branches, you could call them Damaged goods, desperately in need of redemption. Is that your family tree too? Yeah, I hope you can agree with that. But you know, when it comes to genealogies, we are mere beginners in comparison with the Jews. The Jews were experts. Mm. They were very meticulous. They didn't drop a stitch. They took such pride in a pure bloodline. You remember, remember back in the time of Ezra when some Levites could not prove their ancestry all the way back to Aaron? 
They were excluded from exercising the priesthood. Ezra chapter 2. Or in Nehemiah. Mm, there were some others who could not prove their Israelite ancestry because they had lost their records. They were excluded from the congregation of the Israelites. Wow, they really took this seriously, didn't they? We thought the Basques were picky. Well, how important is it to be purebred? Was Jesus a purebred, purebred Jew? We do have his lineage, you know, all mapped out for us right there in the Gospels. Apparently, both sides of the family, even though we understand he was not directly related to Joseph, there was a connection. I mean, they were cousins, so to speak, all descendants of David. But Matthew very carefully gives us Joseph's line all the way back to King David, doesn't he? Because that was what Matthew was about, proving that Jesus really was a son of David. He was the Messiah. And that was his legal status, by the way. Joseph was who gave Jesus his legal status. And that's why Matthew includes his ancestry through Joseph. But then, of course, in Luke, I'm sure you've noticed it, the genealogy is not the same. And experts tell us it's got to be Mary's genealogy. In Luke, what we have is Mary's line back to King David. And because Luke was a Gentile, he took it all the way back to Adam to show we weren't just talking about the Jews here. We're talking about the whole human race. So Mary was actually Jesus' bloodline. Interesting thing about these genealogies, though, we need to notice that they didn't always include every generation. Yeah, you notice that? There are three right here circled that are not actually in Matthew's list. Oh, yeah. Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah are not in Matthew. No, they're not. Why would he leave them out? It happened frequently in genealogies that sometimes they might skip some generations just to summarize. Yeah? And maybe it had to do with the fact that Ahaziah's grandmother was Jezebel. That Phoenician Baal worshiper. Remember her? Goodness, if you had her in your family tree, would you want to brag on it? There she is. Wow. I mean, we can go farther back, you know, and uncover some more dirt if we want to. How about Tamar? That was Judah's daughter-in-law. She was Canaanite, you know. And it was his daughter-in-law who bore Judah, those twins, one of which, Perez, was an ancestor of Jesus. Sounds like Jesus had Spanish blood, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, one of his ancestors was Perez. Well, anyway, the point was Tamar. She was a Canaanite, and she gave those sons to her father-in-law. Wow, that's a messy story, isn't it? Sure was. Or we can think about Rahab. She was a prostitute, you remember, from Jericho, another Canaanite, who saved her family and her family's life and her life by helping the Israelite spies. You remember that story. And then she was married to an Israelite, Salmon. Mm, he might have been one of those spies, a lot of people speculate. 
Well, anyway, Salmon, of course, brings to mind another story, which is Ruth. Remember Ruth the Moabitess, who married Salmon and Rahab's son, Boaz? Do you see what that means? David's great-grandparents had more foreign blood in them than Israelite blood. I mean, Boaz was half Canaanite. Ruth was full-blooded Moabitess. Wow. So maybe Jesus wasn't so purely Jewish after all? In spite of those laws that God put in place, prohibiting marriage outside the lines? We know that God was never racist, don't we? We do understand that. I mean, Acts 17 says very clearly that he made us all from one lineage. The same blood flows in all of our veins. We're all cousins and siblings here. We got that clear? And if we weren't, didn't have it clear by the first round, in Christ, we're all blood relatives, aren't we? Okay. But the reason God set up those prohibitions in the first place about marrying foreigners was because of the terrible influence of that paganism that surrounded Israel and the idolatry of all those peoples. It was so contagious. Was God right or what? Oh, man. We are so susceptible to the paganism all around us and to the hidden idolatry in our own hearts. These are constant dangers for us, seeking to infiltrate how we perceive things, how we act, how we respond, how we relate. Constant dangers on our horizons. I hope you've got them in your sights. So I wonder... Is there something missing in the way we celebrate Christmas and how we convey the Christmas message? I mean, look at how it all began. It seems so simple, so humble. And look what it's come to today. <laughs> Go to downtown Madrid and enjoy the lights, the sounds, the people. <gasps> Wow, everybody loves lights and tinsel, don't we? But how many are truly interested in this humble Savior? Rhetorical question, but I hope you're answering it in your mind. After all, what we really needed wasn't someone who was pure-blooded and spectacular, was it? No. We just needed someone who was pure-hearted, someone free of the fleshly pride that characterizes us humans in general. But to reach the place of our true need, it had to be through the seed of Adam. It had to be someone born of a woman, born under the law. One of us, one of us, you see the solution to our problem had to be given in the exact place where the problem existed. And where was that? In the human heart, in human flesh. So inevitably, this was going to be a messy process, wasn't it? Getting our salvation to us. But it was no obstacle for God, was it? God was totally used to working with sinners 
and our messy situations to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that comforting? Nobody even said amen, but you need to think about it. eh? God was totally used to working with sinners like you and me and our messy situations. And if you haven't got any of those, you haven't lived very long. eh? But to redeem us out of the hand of the enemy, he needed someone who was not in the hands of the enemy. And to break the power of sin over our lives, he needed someone who was not under the power of sin, didn't he? It was a tough assignment because it had to be someone who was the seed of Adam, born of a woman, born under the law, but someone in perfect alignment with him. We need, he needed a perfect Israelite to serve as our kinsman Redeemer. You remember that's what Boaz did for Ruth and Naomi. He was their close kinsman who was willing to rescue them out of their poverty. That's the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament. And that's exactly the role that Jesus fills in our lives. We needed a Savior who could deal with our sin problem. Who could rescue us also from our greatest enemy. Because otherwise we were stuck in the dark, stuck in the misery of our selfishness, stuck in the misery of our slavery to those dark powers. So this is why God had to use the virgin birth. Yeah, have we got that? Now, I don't know how you answer that question, but I'm hoping you're meditating on it this morning. All right? A lot of false ideas circulate about this question. I'm going to expose you to one, and I can only pray that you have sufficient biblical criteria to reject the ancient falsehood that I'm about to expose. Are you ready? It says, the virgin birth was circumvented or circumvented the transmission of the sin nature and allowed the eternal God to become a perfect man. Did you pick up on it? The virgin birth is what? Is circumvented the transmission of the sin nature? In other words, it was the participation of the male species that caused the sin nature to be passed on. Do you hear what that implies? It implies that the male sperm is really contaminated with sin, but the female egg is free of sin. Uh, Excuse me? Does that make any sense to you? Sin is not a physical, material concept. It's a spiritual contagion. This idea was first perpetrated by St. Augustine back in the 5th century, and it hung on and clung to Christian theology for centuries. I hope we're past that. St. Augustine actually taught that sin nature, original sin, is transmitted biologically through the Father. Many have swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. I hope you will label it as it should be labeled. Okay, 
No, that's not true. We don't have to believe that. It's not in the Bible. Nothing about that. The virgin birth was simply the only way that God could get into our skin. Become one of us. By having a human mother. That's how you get to be human. Yeah? Anybody here who didn't have a human mother? <laughs> That's how you got to be human. Bless that mother of yours. Whatever your relationship was with her. <laughs> She's the one who, with your father, gave you your platform in this life. So, in Jesus' case... God's Holy Spirit took the place of a human father. The Holy Spirit breathed life into Mary's womb just as he had breathed life into Adam and Eve. Except that this time, it was God's own life that was being breathed into that egg. Wow. Do we get this? God himself was stepping into the stream of humanity, grafting himself into our family tree, risking himself as a creature of dust like us. That means Almighty God was reducing himself to a human fetus. And you know, come to think of it, since Mary was an unwed mother, probably still a teenager, by today's standard, she was clearly a candidate for eliminating the desired fetus. No? And yet, the imago Dei in Jesus did not develop gradually, did it? No! It was there right from the beginning. Imago Dei. You don't know how to recognize that Latin phrase, right? Image of God. The image and likeness of God was there from the first moment. Doesn't this tell us something about the sacredness of human life from its very beginning? The fact that our Creator has sanctified the smallest, most defenseless form of human life by His very presence? Well, naturally, Joseph was a bit taken aback when he found out that his fiancée was pregnant and he knew that it was not his child. Wow, what a letdown. I'm sure he was quite frustrated for a while, for a moment. We don't know how long. But we can see clearly what a decent chap he was. No? He immediately determined he was not going to make a spectacle of her. He was not going to embarrass her publicly. He would find a way to quietly, discreetly separate himself from this relationship. He would dissolve this marriage privately. Only a dream from, heaven, from a heavenly messenger could change his mind. That was the only thing. And so the heavenly messenger spoke to him, calling him by name, Joseph, son of David. He knew that was he himself. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, 
because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, do you think Joseph understood that? <laughs> he probably would have said, ¿Y qué? <laughs> if he'd been Spanish, of course. <laughs> no, he didn't know what to make of that. But it came from a reliable source. Oh, so he just needed to trust. Besides, look what the heavenly messenger went on to say to him. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, you and I do not immediately make the connection there, but Joseph did. Because you see, there is an etymological relationship between these words. Jesus, save from sins. The name Jesus in Hebrew, of course, was Yeshua. Joseph understood that. He knew that Yeshua meant Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. You can translate it either of those ways. So besides that, the angel had clarified that this child would save his people from their sins. It made sense. The name went with the mission. You didn't have to translate it for Joseph. He got it right off the bat. So then the prophetic word that Matthew quotes from Isaiah 7 was almost like a Hebrew parallelism. In parallel with this Yeshua who saves his people from their sins, Matthew quotes the phrase from Isaiah where it said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Okay, now we know that in Isaiah, in the original, that word doesn't just mean virgin. It can just mean a young woman. Well, that's true. Because in that case, she was not a virgin. She was the wife of Isaiah. She was the one who was going to conceive. There, the, the prophecy had a double fulfillment, and that's what Matthew is recognizing. Back then, it was that young woman married to that prophet. But in the New Testament, it was about a virgin a woman who had not known a man who would conceive and bear a son. Back then, it may have represented God's presence to them, Emmanuel, but this time it was Emmanuel being enfleshed. So we take a look at that second name. The child would be called Emmanuel. I didn't mean that would be his name by which people would call him, but that was a title that would be given him. Imanu is what the first part of that says in Hebrew. Imanu, which means with us. With us. El. Imanu El. And El, as many of you probably know, is another Hebrew word for God, as in Elohim. With us is God. Yahweh is the only one who can save. And Yahweh came to be with us personally in Yeshua. God was bringing himself fully into the human scenario through this baby. Matthew and Luke both give this witness. Matthew says, engendered by the Holy Spirit. And Luke says that the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary. John, he says the logos, the very word of God 
would become flesh, would become human. Paul says the one who was in, in the form of God, who was equal with God, would empty himself of heavenly glory, would divest himself of divine privilege in order to take on the form of a servant, a human servant. And the writer to the Hebrews says the author of salvation was made to share in flesh and blood because that's what the children were made of. He came to be made of the same thing. All of them are giving the same testimony. You see, this is not just opinion. This is not just speculation. This was the only logical conclusion, the only logical interpretation for this amazing life, and it was spiritual revelation confirmed through all of those biblical writers. It was historical testimony to the truth that impacts our worlds, our world, and our lives with the power of God to rescue us from all the enemy's attempts to confuse, to sidetrack, and to destroy. Do you see how important this is? The virgin birth turns out to be very important because today there are so many voices that ridicule the idea of virgin birth. In fact, all they can do is make jokes about it. Yeah, another immaculate conception, another virgin birth, ha ha. They're making fun of something very fundamental to our faith, even in some sectors of the church. An attack on the virgin birth is an attack on the incarnation. Do we understand how important incarnation is? Enfleshment. That's what the whole doctrine is about. God was enfleshed to be like us so that he could redeem us. An attack on the incarnation is an attack on the heart of the Christian faith. But I ask you, is the virgin birth any harder for God to accomplish than the creation of the world, the universe? Or is it any harder than raising Jesus from the dead? I don't think so. If we have a God this big, he could accomplish this small thing, even though it's a big thing in our eyes. In effect, to attack the incarnation, to attack the virgin birth, is like saying, there's no such thing as miracles, ever. Oh, okay. If that's what you want to believe. This is the growing view of a number of skeptics in our world. Or it's the view of a growing number of skeptics in our world. Loud and aggressive materialists who place all their hope in technology and science and agnostic mindfulness. They're the ones who are pushing for the new laws, providing for abortion all the way to birth. Oh, this baby that was born. Uh -uh. That's what they're pushing for. They're the ones sponsoring relentless attacks on God's design for marriage, for family, for sexuality. See, all of these issues have one thing in common. They are part of a coordinated attack on the image of God in humans. No, oh, we don't want to be different from the rest of the animals and plants. 
on the planet. No difference between us and them. Erase the image of God. You do away with the image of God in humans, and human life becomes as cheap as Satan has managed to make it in many very unpleasant places in our world. Would you like to go live in one of those places? I wouldn't. You see, Jesus Christ is the only guarantee we have against the forces of evil because he faced them down at Calvary. He was living out the Imago Dei and all its implications in human flesh under the worst possible circumstances. He kept living out the image of God. You see, we can never separate Bethlehem from Calvary, can we? That was the mission. And at Calvary, Jesus lived out the full implications of that Imago Dei under the worst possible circumstances. American astronomer and astrophysicist. Sounds like a really smart guy, doesn't it? Carl Sagan was his name. In his 1997 book, Pale Blue Dot, A Vision of the Human Future in Space, he wrote this. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all of this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Profound words. He got one thing right. We need salvation from ourselves. Do you perceive it? We desperately need that. And this most knowledgeable of human beings says, no hint of help from somewhere else. None. Don't hope for any help from outside this system. I ask you, what does the incarnation say? What does the incarnation say to a person like Carl Sagan, smart as he is? foretold by hundreds of prophecies, fulfilled in unimaginable ways by a kinsman redeemer who is literally incomparable. The incarnation says that in Jesus Christ, a light has dawned from beyond this world on those who walked in darkness, that's you and me, as God patiently waited inside a young woman's womb to begin breathing our air, walking in our skin, struggling with our temptations and anxieties, carrying our burdens, bearing our sins, loving us in the face of all our rebellion, providing us with real light and hope. When you affirm the incarnation, you are affirming that life has meaning, purpose, and hope. When you affirm the incarnation, you're affirming my life also matters.
you're affirming God really cares. God really came for us. He is with us even now. Will you pray with me? Blessed Savior, we address you with such gratitude and such humility in our hearts. How could a God who is so great, so powerful, so majestic and holy come and live inside our lowly skin and our messy situations? We cannot fathom it, Lord Jesus, but we believe it. We confess it. We acknowledge there is no other explanation that can cover all the criteria. Thank you for coming. Thank you for putting up with us. Thank you for being with us even in our messes. Blessed Lord, we praise you today. We long for you to be the center of our Christmas celebration. In Jesus' name, amen.